we are stronger together than we are apart. That's probably one of my main messages for this film. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Dalski, and co-hosting with me is the very talented, very witty L.A. lawyer, Rudy Sallo. This is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates. And this is part two of our discussion with Dr. Tom Keith about his film, How Does It Feel To Be A Problem? We continue talking about the notion of otherness, we talk about race and American culture, and also for any aspiring filmmakers, we talk about the process of making a documentary. If you haven't listened to part one, pause right now, go back and listen to the first part. It's a great episode. I mean, Tom is just fantastic. And this is actually his fourth time being on the pod. Okay, let's talk. How does it feel to be a problem? Something else in your film, it's not only Black Lives Matter that you're covering, but essentially anybody who's been othered. Is that fair to say? I was interested in the discussion about Native Americans uh, or Indigenous people because there seems to be, there's this rise in interest and understanding. Now, there's a lot of pushback, but I'll give you an example. There's somebody who's in his 30s. He's a young man on TikTok, and he's, he goes by the name Modern Warrior, and he's made quite a name for himself. And when you look at his videos, there's no, you know, like fiery, entertaining things. He's actually just being very, very clear about historical facts about what it means to be Native American. And what brings me joy is that his account is over like something like 2 million and he gets so many hits. So there is this hunger for having an understanding of what the foundation of the United States is, even though there's still this denial. But I'm wondering if the denial is getting bigger because the understanding and the interest is there. Anything that you learned about covering Native Americans in that history? Well, I've sat down now with elders all over the country. I I sat down with the elders of Mohawk Nation. I was at Standing Rock, a Cherokee Nation, Apache Nation in Arizona. I sat down with them and talked to them. They're in the film. And I want to first say that because they're so isolated and they're on reservations, their stories never get out. They really don't. Hundreds and hundreds of indigenous women are missing. But all over CNN is, you know, the missing white woman and her fiance that was killed, you know, the people from Florida and all of that. And their story is is worthy. I'm not trying to say it isn't. But hundreds and hundreds for years now of indigenous women have gone missing. And their stories aren't covered at all. When I went to Standing Rock, you know, the celebrities were gone. All that's done. Trump had already stuck the pipeline under the Missouri River. And so here I am sitting in a house with these folks. And, you know, it was was a very kind of bleak mentality. I I asked, you know, how are things going? And then not good. No one cares. The celebrities are gone. They had their photo op. And so that's done. And they're starving. They don't have electricity. They don't have clean drinking water. They can't vote because they don't have state-issued IDs, picture IDs, and the governor knows it. He doesn't want them voting. This is another way that, you know, racism is in the system. This is happening all over the country. When you say, though, about the young person on social media, how the falls, let me be optimistic for a second, because I think people are going to listen and go, oh, my God, I'm going to build bomb shelters live in that now. My optimism comes from this generation. When you say, like, there's 2 million people, I can almost guarantee you they are young people. This younger generation is really turned on by the things that you're talking about, whether it's understanding the conditions of indigenous and native people in America and making changes. They care about feminism. They care about Black Lives Matter. They are very progressive. And I speak in red states and blue states, and the young people are not reflections necessarily of their parents and grandparents. So I think that a lot of the biggest resistance, there are exceptions to the rule, of course, 
I think some of the biggest resistance are older people and particularly older white people and you know, middle-aged to older white people are where you're getting a lot of this pushback. But college campuses all across the country are completely, it's why we're under attack. I'm sure, Gwendolyn, you know this, we're under attack as educators. Critical race theory now is not supposed to be taught in the classroom. I was in Texas this past summer on the day that that Republican legislator outlawed the ability for teachers to talk about Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech in their classroom. I was there that day. I was in the Capitol building, putting pictures, throwing it on social media. I go, so this is what just happened in, in Austin today. And so educators are under attack. There are lists. I don't know if you know this. It's very McCarthy-esque. There are professors now are on a list, and some of my close friends around the country are on that list as being liberal and progressive, and they're, you know, and so they should be fired in all of this. It's the McCarthyism all over again aimed at educators. We are under attack. They don't like academic freedom. They believe that we are indoctrinating their kids with these liberal progressive messages, and they want us out. Because you visit just about any college campus in America, for the most part, and you have a real strong progressive presence there on that campus. You go outside of the campus community, of course, it's a different story. And so they see it as a higher education is ruining America by brainwashing them with this liberal nonsense. That's a very strong mindset out there in rural America right now. You know, I had read one of the reasons why people tend to be a bit more on the left-leaning or liberal side, they tend to after being in university, is not because of indoctrination, but there's another causal factor. And that other causal factor is that if you're in university, you are more likely to befriend and be around people who are unlike you. And that causes empathy and a different view of the world. So no, but there's also plenty of conservative professors out there. I know in my own work, I try to make it clear to the students that if I ever am expressing my own point of view, I say so. Also, I am always inviting dialogue and so that they can understand in different ways of looking at something. Um, but this has to do with stuff like philosophy of sex and love. And I have to tell them at the very beginning, this is an inherently liberal thing because the fact that we are going to even examine this as an academic topic, what are the ideas underscoring this? There is no way around it. It's inherently a liberal viewpoint. So I said, so if any of you are uncomfortable with that, then this might not be the class for you. So I let them know up front what they're about to get into. And you know, they can they can decide. And you're right, they're interested. They want to talk about this. And well, especially Cal Poly Pomona. It's I think the most ethnically diverse Cal State system. And so it's not like I'm coming into the classroom and saying, hey, let me explain to you stuff about race. They are the ones who are craving the dialogue and want to be heard. And just to give you an example, um, a lot of times when we talk about race, and this also is in your film talking about Asian Americans, Asian Americans, their history is left behind. And Rudy and I did an episode that talked about Asian American history with an Asian American scholar. And I can't even tell you my Asian American students who have listened to that. It's incredible. It means so much to them. It means so much to them because that is something that is overlooked and not discussed. But it's not only for my Asian American students. It's also for someone like me. It's also for people who are not Asian to have this awareness that there are different ways of experiencing the world. Absolutely. I think I just went on a tangent. And for anybody to be, uh, you know, to be upset about that, I, you know what it is? It's that there is 
different ways of being in the world. There's different ways, you know, like when it came to Kaepernick kneeling and everything, I remember saying to somebody, a conservative family member who was upset about that. And I said, well, not everyone's experience of being American is the same. And I think that that is the, maybe one of the ways that it seems to be liberal is that there's this recognition that there are different ways of being in the world. There's different ways of being American in the world. There's different ways in which we are treated by the system in the world. As far as systemic, you're talking about law enforcement and such, but there's also banks. There's also realtors. There's also, I mean, I would be, I'm the direct, I mean, my father was in Vietnam and got the GI Bill. I am the direct beneficiary of that because as a result of that, he was able to put a down payment on a home, get a better education, get a nice six-figure job, and then invest in me. And where I am right now, if I were like a conservative person who sometimes I hear arguments like, oh, slavery was so long ago. What is everybody complaining about? It's because somebody my age who also had a parent in Vietnam who was black would be in a different economic situation to suggest that it's all in the past is incorrect because it affects everyone's life right now. And for those who don't know, let me tag on to that. There were two and a half million GIs in World War II. When the war ended and they came back here, the government did not extend the GI Bill to them. And so white GIs were given, like you said, uh, terrific interest rates on loans. The suburbs were being built in the 1950s. And so here are these beautiful little homes outside of cities. So you don't have to live in the inner city anymore. You can commute to work. And you have homes, of course. You have equity. You build generational wealth that way. If you come back from the war and you don't have access to those things, all you can do is rent. And you're going to rent back in the inner cities. You're not building any equity or generational wealth. And that's why we have, to this day, income inequalities, great income inequalities between black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods. That's institutionalized racism, as was Jim Crow, as was redlining, as was sundown towns. We can go on and on and on with government-mandated racism. So anyone, and this is all documented. This yeah. is a bunch of liberals, you know, this is documented. Look it up. And so this is systematic, institutionalized racism. There was also institutionalized sexism. All right. So both of those things going hand in hand. Women didn't have the right to vote. And then they didn't have the ability to get jobs or get educations for centuries. And so the same thing. And so slowly, very slowly, we've seen the access. But think of this as a race. Imagine you're running a race like a marathon, and you have 20 people there, and they say, okay, ready, set, go, and they let, they let two-thirds of them start to run, and they hold the others back until the, the others are like five miles out, and they go, okay, now you can go. And they're five miles trying to catch up with the people that already had you know, a 20-minute start. That's why what happened in the past affects where we are right now. It's not just about the past. When certain white people say to me, slavery ended a long time ago, you know, let, let's stop talking about racism. You know what? Slavery ended and then racism continued. Jim Crow segregationism didn't end until the 1960s and then it only ended legally and de facto it continued on. And then throughout, you know, all the other things we're talking about, the sundown towns, the lack of opportunity to get bank loans, to get insured housing, that was part of redlining. Even if you did get a house, you couldn't get it insured. And then if they burnt it down with something, you're broke. So all of this happened to people of color. It was targeted. It was systematic, and it was backed with the blessings of the U.S. government. We have to own that. That isn't hating America, folks. That's saying 
let's make America better in a real way, not, not make America great again. Let's make it better so that there really is equality and there's a level playing field. We've never had a level, a level playing field yet. And I think even historically, sometimes the way that we talk about where it seems like there has been an achievement, that there has been something missing. So Brown v. Board of Education would be an example that a lot of times you'll look at it as this pillar of justice, but actually just the fact that they let 20,000 teachers go, Black teachers. What happened to them? What happened to their families? What happened to their income? They integrated the students, never the teachers, because white families did not want white children to be taught by Black teachers, which means that you have generations growing up not knowing of a Black intellectual, not knowing of a Black authority figure. And and how would that impact them later in their life? And But I still think about the 20,000 families where there's just no income right there. But we, we don't talk about it in that way. We talk about it as though, isn't this just such a great movement forward? Which I'm not, I am happy Brown v. Board of Education. I'm just saying the handling of it maybe could have done more uh, instead of doing some some harm, integrate the teachers as well, not disparage the black teachers. And those are excellent points. And I would add, even when you have a landmark decision like that, which was a nine nothing slam dunk by the court, it was one of the most unpopular decisions decisions in its day. Lots of protested this. And lots of school districts just said, F you, we're not going to do that. That's why Alabama Governor George Wallace, you know, had to have the National Guard escort black students in there because they weren't having it. And this was true throughout America. There were school districts going all the way into the 1970s that were still resisting integration. My sister, now this will tell you how conservative my upbringing was. My sister went to Bob Jones University in South Carolina. If you know anything, any of you know about that? We're talking about one of the most regressive institutions in American history. Absolutely. They did not allow black people until 1979. So when I hear, well, there was Brown versus Board. Yes. And there was the backlash to Brown versus Board that went another 20 years. And, and there's still people, of course, that are complaining about this. And it wasn't just in the South. There was those riots in Boston school districts for years in the 70s as well. You can go back and take a look oh. at that. I mean, the Northeast also had their own. California, we had our own situations here. So I'm trying to be fair to the South for once. I mean, the, 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 <laughs> for it, once. It, it was the whole nation that was the issue. I don't remember California back in the days. It was as conservative and racist as any place. We had enclaves of, of clan here. I mean, big outpourings. If you do any like little tiny bit of historical background into the communities in Orange County, you could actually find some crazy Ku Klux Klan or German Nazi stories that go back there in Anaheim and Fullerton. And I was obsessed with learning the white supremacist background of Orange County because I grew up there. I'm an Arab American. And that impact that it had on me being affected by the skinheads, I had to learn like, why? why? Where did this come from? All you got to do is open up a couple of books or do a couple of Google searches, and it's there. I mean, it, there is a long history of racism in such beautiful places as sunny Southern California that will blow your mind away in Pasadena, in the Palos Verdes Peninsula, you know, here in my hometown in Manhattan Beach with Bruce's Beach. There's, there's been terrible things that have happened that easily documented that you know, still affect people today. And it's still here. And I, you know, I mean, we're a big state. We're a very big state. And it's right here in Los Angeles, but we have huge enclaves of white supremacism in places like Bakersfield and Stockton and places like that. 
And by the way, those of you keep it, I'm escaping California. That's kind of the, the rant right now. And it's just another white flight statement that I remember from the 1980s when Reagan was in here and people were saying, you know, I, we're going to leave and we're going to go to Orange County. And what they'll say is the taxes are just too oppressive. When in fact, when you get them alone and they think that you're an ally with their racist thinking, they'll say, there's too many black and brown people showing up here. And that's why they're blowing out of here and going to Texas. I'm an ally. Um, there are too many taxes in California, but that's not the subject <laughs> of the show. We could talk about that some other time. We've definitely talked about that, Tom, um, but I'm definitely an ally. Do not, do, please believe me that I'm an ally. <laughs> this all started with Lee Atwater, who was one of the lead advisors to both Nixon and Reagan. Have, you, have any of you ever heard this? Go to YouTube, type in Lee Atwater, comma, Southern Strategy. Okay, I like this. All right. You got to, if you haven't heard this, it'll blow your mind. You all know what a hot mic is. And politicians will say things when they think the microphone's off, and boom, we have this explosive statement that they didn't realize was going live. Lee Atwater was one of the most powerful Republicans in the 1970s and 80s. He was lead advisor, as I said, to both Nixon and Reagan. The Southern strategy is, let's turn the South Republican. I know most people don't, what do you mean it is Republican? It didn't used to be. The South was a Democrat stronghold for years. And so Republicans thought, how can we get the South? Well, what can we do? We can't use the N-word anymore. And by the way, he just says the N-word as he's saying that. We can't say that anymore because, you know, that's no longer cool. That's no longer politically correct. So what we have to do is talk about racism and the black people and all without saying it. And so here's the buzzwords we're now going to use. Welfare. And we're going to talk about big government. And we're going to talk about taxing us to all these things that really, if we can villainize a group of people, the poor, black people, immigrants, if we can turn them into the villains without coming out with real racist rhetoric and just saying racist things, a bunch of people in the South are going to flip and they're going to be, and was he correct? Please, you know, and it's still going on. The dog whistle politics of Donald Trump were daily, daily. I'm hearing it now with, when I look at, this also reminded me of our discussion with Dahlia about viruses, but I hear when people are talking about the border and they're saying they're bringing in COVID, they're bringing in disease. And so the dialogue is immediately associating other immigrants, people at the border with these are diseased people. It's so bad. And I'm thinking, I just, I don't know how people are saying this and just not even being thoughtful or reflective that they are just associating outsiders as diseased people who are dirty and we don't want in our place. No, none of this is new. And it will sap the energy. It's like, come on. There's, you know, I've even heard one particular nasty guy on Fox, which I won't even give him credit for his name, but he has talked, this is an effort for Democrats to get new voters because they'll vote for Democrats. But a lot of people from Latin America, from south of the border, are actually very socially conservative. So it's just, it's ridiculous. That is not some sort of a long-term democratic plan. And it's not a way to devalue somebody's vote. In this, I mean, making the United States bigger and having more business and bringing more people in, the underscoring assumption is that an immigrant would take everything instead of actually give more. It's, it's so bizarre to me. 
again, I think it's a tactic used for political purposes to, they're, they're saying this to a particular base. A good example is Cuba. You know, when the people came over from Cuba, they're decidedly conservative okay, because their perception was the Republicans are against Castro, we're against Castro, so now we have, you know, common in- When in fact, the Republicans would have loved to stick them all on a boat and boot them back to Cuba. They wanted nothing to do with them. And lo and behold, they all become Republicans because of the common uh, idea that Castro's a bad guy and has to go. So you're right. There's no basis for this notion that this is somehow a Democratic plan to get more voters. It's absurd. And you have lots of Latino voters today that are conservative or moderates in one direction or another. But these are tactics they're using. They're using racialized uh, imagery of poor people who don't have a political voice, mind you, to try to rally their base and charge up their base. One thing Trump has been good at, I don't think he's particularly bright, but he's good at some things. He is good at really railing and getting people angry and upset and all the name calling, the pejorative you know, name calling. And it works. It gets people really angry and excited. And that's why he would have these rallies with, with huge numbers. I mean, now he doesn't. And people say, look at this movement. Something's happening. Well, the same thing. And I know there are people that are going to say this is going too far. But if you look at the early rise of Adolf Hitler, who was jailed before he came to power, he was considered a joke. He was thrown in jail. And people are going, this guy is a moron. And it was then a few years later where he rose to power under this, let's make Germany great again. He literally said that along with Goebbels, who is his propaganda minister. That was his official title, Minister of Propaganda. Brian Levin is in my new film, and he's a director of the Center for Hate. This is a study of hate, and you've got to see Brian. He's on CNN all the time. And he's, he goes to chapter and verse on how Goebbels, along with Hitler and the other people in his circle, were able to turn him into sort of a movie star, if you will, to give him this larger-than-life image. And Trump is, has has certainly taken chapters out of that book, how to be bigger than life and get people to put you on a pedestal and almost deify you. They literally made him into like a golden object at the last CPAC. I don't know how many So silly. I mean, now we're in the book of Exodus, you know, and you have your golden calf that you're praying to. And this is what I mean is that he's become a cult of personality and he's bombastic and he's pejorative and all those things that you and I might go, how is that attractive to you? But that is what causes this emotional reaction, this passion for it. Otherwise, if you had someone who was you know, not that kind of personality, I don't think they would have anywhere near the sort of success that Trump has had. I mean, I, I remember, you know, Lyndon LaRouche and some of these people in the past that, and, you know, these, these uh, nationalists, and they never really got a lot of leverage. They never really got very far. And they didn't have the kind of personality. But then the media wasn't as it was. We, just, we talked about that earlier. And their personalities certainly didn't match it. I don't want to suggest that if Trump is gone, I mean, really gone and never comes back, that all of it will go with him, because I don't think so. I think a whole bunch of smarter versions of Trump have been paying attention for the last five years and said, wow, look at how much power you can have with certain messaging. And they have taken notes. And I think we know some of those right now. They're jockeying for 2024 and beyond with the very same message, but a smarter, more nuanced version of it. And now a quick break to hear from our friends at Harpy Hour Podcast. Hey, everyone, you're invited to Harpy Hour. I'm Tracy. I'm Liz. I'm Steph. We are the Harpies. 
and Harpy Hour is our new podcast featuring ridiculous stories in history, science, and entertainment. Were you ever suspicious that pigeons were secretly spying on you? How do you know who to eat first if you survive a shipwreck? Do problematic musicals send you into an uncontrollable rage? If so, then Harpy Hour might be your new favorite podcast. That's H-A-R-P-Y for Harpy and new episodes air every Tuesday wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on all social media at Harpy Hour Pod. And check us out on harpyhourpodcast.com. Okay, bye! Back to the show. At the beginning, you said that this was a learning curve working on this film. So what is it that you learned this fifth go with the film? And also when we finished talking to you about your film on bullying, we asked, you know, what is the hope? So I guess I kind of want to put the same thing to you with this project. What is the hope? We're exposing a lot of problems, but what's the upside? Let me start with the learning curve because this is going to go in a really different direction. When I was making films for MEF, you know, it's big fish in a little pond. You know, you're making these films that are being played in classrooms, and that's cool, and lots of people are seeing them in classrooms, but not beyond that. When you start making films that are going to festivals now, and you're now trying to get distribution from major players and all, now you're a little fish in a big pond, and all that goes with that. So the learning curve is constant. It's much like the music industry that I was a part of in the 1980s. Lots of sharks in the water trying to take a bite. And so you have to learn to navigate that. You need a good lawyer, and I have one. And so, and I had to incorporate the film business as a result as well. Because when you're making controversial documentaries, I guess I'm controversial, fighting lawsuits. So I've had to incorporate my, my film company. Now, the other thing is, when we are in our own echo chambers, meaning here we are, quote, progressive or liberal professors in Southern California, and people remind me of that a lot. We allegedly are, you know, in our own little echo chambers. And when I get out with a film like this, at first you're not ready for the pushback and just how hard that pushback is. I mean, almost to the border of violent pushback. And so that's part of the learning curve as I'm taking this film out around the country. And I'm being very selective with the festivals, by the way, because of this. There are people already who um, said threatening things about me and the film. They haven't even seen the film, by the way. It's just all the advanced stuff. And the teaser couldn't be more positive. My goodness, what are they going to do when they actually see the film? I think that's part of it, that there are concerns, that there are people out there that are going to take this as a propaganda tool against them, and they're going to see it as the enemy. So there's all of that. On the other hand, there's a lot of interest right now in films about social justice, Netflix has an entire segment on what they call Black Lives Matter. But a lot of these films are made from black filmmakers. My co-writer on this film is a black professor from New York City, Dr. J.W. Wiley. This was his idea, I want to be clear. I had finished The Empathy Gap, and he came to me with this project a little over six years ago about race ethnicity based on his book. And I'm going to have to paraphrase this because the title of the book is something I, I won't use this word, but the title of his book is The N in You. Mm. Get what I'm saying? His book talks about the othering, as you were saying earlier, of lots of different people, mm -hmm. people, of course, but lots of different groups. And so he brought this idea to me and I said, you know, I, I like it, of course. I think we're going to have to narrow the focus a little bit to get it into a 90 minute film format. 
that's sort of the the genesis of this particular film. And so he's been my, my sort of constant advisor throughout this. And, you know, as I'm editing and filming people and all of that. And so this isn't just a white guy and his version of what's happening in, in black America. This has been guided by a black writer. I want to be clear about that. The cast is overwhelmingly made up of people of color with several, you know, very notable white scholars. The late James Lowen is in this film, the Harvard historian that wrote the book, uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me, which oh. is a founding book on history. Yeah, he's in this, in this film. I went to his house and he was just, a, as you can imagine, an encyclopedia on the history of racism in America. You know, the actors, Danny Glover, Henry uh, Rollins, and the late Ed Asner are in this film. And I really want to say to anyone who's thinking, like, how did you get these guys in your film? It is not easy to get celebrities in their film. They have managers that basically build moats around them so you can't get to them. So you have to find some way to get to them and then sell the product. And I've always said, if you give me five minutes to pitch it, I'll get you in the film. That's kind of how I feel. And when I had that time with them, they were all like, I'm in. You know, it wasn't even, let me think about it, I'm in. And that's why I have a lot of love for uh, late Ed Asner, who was an activist throughout his entire life, right? I don't think that side of his life is, is as well known as maybe it should be. Danny Glover also has been a lifetime activist. And, and Henry Rollins, you know, who many of you know him as the lead singer in Black Flag and, you know, and Rollins Band. Now he's been in, I don't know, 60 or 70 movies. He was in Sons of Anarchy. And what a lot of people might know is his activism. He's anti-racism. His activism is also in feminism. I mean, you've got to hear him talk about feminism someday and his passion for it. Unbelievable. And, and passion against bullying and all of these things. This guy is worth, I don't know, $50 million. You know where we did the film, where we filmed him? Right here in my house. He drove all the way from Hollywood to come here and film and hang out with us. And my son, Paul's friends are who huge black flag, you know, they're all here getting his autograph and everything and getting will talk to him. I got to give someone love who's doing that because a lot of celebrities take things like marches as a photo op. And they're the ones in the trenches who are really doing it and sacrificing to do it. Whether that means getting, you know, arrested and all of these things, they, they put their money where their mouth is. And all three of those guys deserve praise for that. It was not easy. Ditto Jackson Brown, when he heard about this project, he, he was in immediately, says, I have a song on my new album called Until Justice is Real, and I think it would work with your film. You can have it. Oh, if you wow. it. That's awesome. That's amazing, man. Like, that's so, it makes me feel so good to hear that. Usually I'm working with Sony or Universal to try to get some music and negotiating, you know. And I'm, I'm a teacher, all right? I don't have deep pockets here. And so they'll say, well, you want Adele? That's a joke. You're not going to get millions of dollars. I tried to get, um, it's a, uh, it'll come to me, but the, the price tag is just it's ridiculous. So people think, how do you get music in your film? And a lot of times you just have to make it yourself. But in this case, here's a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer that said, you know, I love the film. I'm honored. And we've had many, multiple conversations now where he's so humble and says, I'm just really honored that you have my song in your film. I can't tell you, Tom. You know, They're going to be wow. at the center, by the way, this uh, on the 30th. But I want to say that. That's hard because if you're a budding filmmaker out there, and a lot of my friends are, you know how many films are out there these days? You know, Sundance gets somewhere in the neighborhood of 19,000 to 20,000 films every single year dumped on them. And they only accept 200. 
to figure that out, right? And you're looking at these other festivals, it's hard. The competition is everywhere right now. And so having celebrity presence, I think, is going to give this film a little bit of an advantage. I hope so anyway, because I think the message is worth it. And being on Good is in the Details podcast, <laughs> I mean, you know, we'll be promoting ad nauseum. So believe me when I say thank you for honoring us for, for coming on. I mean, it's, it's a big deal that you came on and talked about this awesome movie, seriously. I have never had to be so self-promotional. And it, I, I feel awkward. This is not... This is not, I don't enjoy the, you know, having to go, I, I go on multiple media things and, and they, they ask me the same questions over and over and over again. And you have to act as though that's fresh and new. Oh yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And you've already answered that question 25 times, which is cool, which is fine, but you have to be self-promotional and it's not really my personality. In fact, I told my partner, J.W. Wiley, because he's, he's a natural. I said, when we start this, you're the face, bro. You're the one that's out there and going to be in front of the cameras. And I'm going to sit back there and applaud you because he's got the personality, the desire, and the knowledge and all. He, anything. People say, you're doing a great job. He's 10 times what I am. So let me now get to the part about optimism. All mm -hmm. right. Because I got to temper this with realism. My optimism is not, I, I don't want to be naive and I don't think I am. So I think optimism has to be tempered with some, some realism here. My optimism mainly comes through the young people of this country right now and the future. And we're at a pivotal point right now. And where we go in the next few years, I think is absolutely imperative to where this nation goes. So even though I may be I'm optimistic right now because as you were saying earlier, a Native American person having 2 million followers, that's just one of many, many, many examples of how people who didn't have a voice or presence at all in this country now do. And I've met Native activists all around the country that are getting a lot more prominence than they ever did before. Ditto people from Black Lives Matter. I can't stress enough how the people, Hawk Newsom, is the president of Black Lives Matter New York. He's a friend of mine. He's just an awesome person. And if you just hung out with him for one afternoon, the first thing you, you get about him, the first thing you get is this is a movement about love. It's not a movement about hate. It's not about we hate these people and we want to harm these people in some way. He says in the very beginning of my film, and I don't want to misquote, but he says, there are people in this nation that are devoting their lives to the oppression of others. And we are going to leave them where they are. And we are going to build the bridges of love around them. And, profound. And um, that's... Um, leave them where they are. As we were saying, you're not going to reach everyone. You're not going to reach everyone. And that's okay. And maybe some way down the road, maybe they're reached. Maybe someone they love as a more credible, like their, their child, their son, their daughter might bring these messages to them and they might have a different attitude. But right now, they are oppositional and they don't want anything to do with this. But this is a movement of love, not hate. And I think it's millions strong. This is not a small movement. One of my messages in this film, and I hope this comes through, because even within our own progressive circles, there's what's called the Oppression Olympics. Has anyone ever heard that expression before? No. The Oppression Olympics is, well, our group is the one that's oppressed the most, and so we're the one that have the greatest need and urgency. No, we are, and this starts to become a competition. Mm -hmm. Okay, so one of the things I'm trying to suggest in this film, and a whole bunch of unbelievable people are in this film agreeing with me, we need to build alliances. 
we must reach out to all of these different groups and work together and not see one another as competitors. There's strength in numbers. And if we continue to be fragmented and say, you know, this is our our territory and we're going to work only on this territory, you folks over here, I don't think that's going to work. I think we need to come together and build alliances. And that's one of the, that's how my film ends, is on allies and the need for allies to come together in solidarity and commonality and work together. And I think that's the key to turning this movement into a, a huge movement. It already, I think, is growing and it's big, but I think it can get bigger and that's how we do it. And that's my goal for this film. And that's the message I'm going to be pushing hard on radio and TV, that we need to build alliances, including white people. Jaziri X is in this film, who's a really great rapper. He's a great social justice rapper. And he says, if we're going to move these movements forward, we just need more people. He goes, as black people, we're 13% of the population. You know, it's going to take more folks. And he's right. You know, we have to come together as allies. We're trying to get to the same promised land, even though my ancestors didn't struggle the way these, my life hasn't struggled the way others have struggled over no fault of their own. And so we need white people. We need all of the different groups, including LGBT and all of these, these other groups who've been marginalized and continue to be marginalized, to come together and say, we, we are stronger together than we are apart. And that's probably one of my main messages for this film. That's so important. I mean, as I was listening to you, I was thinking, I mean, for me as a white woman, a 25-year-old white woman, um, Rudy doesn't even, Rudy didn't even flinch at that. I, did, I just looked away <laughs> at that point. I, I knew you were going to throw, throw the 25-year-old oh. in. But I had to think about, I was actually thinking about this with my students, that I have recoiled. I can, it's not an ideology. I can feel it in my bones. I remember when I was younger and I was on a date with somebody and he made a very homophobic comment and that was the end of it. And it wasn't an ideology. I could feel a threat to my own sense. And somebody might wonder, well, wait a minute, why is that? And it took so many years for me to understand why extreme racism or these white supremacist groups or homophobic comments scare me. And it is because I can feel that I am in danger. I am around somebody who is willing to be violent for an irrational reason. And I am not safe in the presence of this person. What do you think about that? When you put that together for our country, we are not safe as those people multiply. Yeah. I believe in an inclusive America. One of my favorite things about teaching at Cal Poly, being in Southern California or being in New York City, I love the diversity. I love to learn from others. I think when people unlike me, women, LGBTQ, people of color, people who are differently able, when they're talking to me about their experience, they're giving me a gift because I don't have that lived experience. I can now learn from them and grow. And I love that. I, I celebrate that. It's one of my favorite things about Southern California. And if I could get other white people to maybe look at it in that light, instead of looking at people as the other, as a potential you know, stranger, an enemy, and they don't speak my language, and they have accents, and they, they eat different foods, or whatever it is that they're using to try to alienate people, instead of saying, gosh, isn't this a, an interesting moment where you can embrace this and learn and grow and it's a different mindset. It's just a completely different attitude. And I'd like that attitude to be more infectious than the attitude of being skeptical and worrying. They might be a criminal and, you know. Really quick, just to kind of wrap it up and just to kind of take your message from the film, Tom. I mean, 
I, as an Arab American, not to play the, uh, you know, the, the greater suppressor here or, or the worst oppressor or whatever, the oppressor Olympics here, but we have our own set of unique circumstances in the United States and we're very few in number. So I, I've always actually been attracted to um, all of the other races, Black or Asian, uh, Latino, LGBTQ, anybody out there, just because I know that they feel the otherness because they've felt the otherness. And so they've always felt this like camaraderie with them and they get it. Like, even though I might look like a, you know, white guy from Orange County, like once they hear like my side of the story, they're like, oh, you get us. Because I'm so few in number, I've been forced from a very young age to reach out to other groups in order to get that alliance, in order to get that feeling. So the fact that that's the, your message from the movie is great because it's a very clear message where, you, where you're telling people, hey, if you want to do something, sure, okay, join an organization. But don't just join an organization. Go attend a meeting of another organization or hear somebody else's story. Get those, those feelings together, those common areas, because... As an alliance, we can move forward. We can leave those that do want to look in the past rather to the future. We can leave them behind, you know, with dignity or without dignity, but we can all move forward together with some love and mutual understanding. So I love that. I love that message. Thank you for having that message. Well, that, absolutely. Thank you. And, and that's how we overcome hate is we outnumber it and we come together and we now have a political voice instead of a bunch of fragmented people who don't have much of a political voice. We now collectively have power. And if they don't want to come with us, then they can stay as they are, and we'll build around them, as Hawk Newsom says. And I think that's absolutely right. We'll leave them at the dinner table in Las Vegas. That's what we'll do. <laughs> to tie back to, I thought, okay, more. Yeah. I got it. Any event. You got it. Yeah, you got the We all place. got it. Rudy, we're on, the same, we're on the same page. Hey, was I delayed? Like, you were delayed about my, you're, I'm 25 years old, you know? So that was just payback. It was perfect. It was perfect. <laughs> Okay, Tom, best of luck with your film. I really, I really enjoy your work. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, one other one link. Yeah, I know. It's such good work. You know what? It, it doesn't work. surprise me that you're getting big names to be part of your project because you yourself have such a passion for this. It's it's not just a, hey, I want to make a film. It's a sole purpose. You're, you're guided by this. You don't want to just talk about change or just even have the narrow version of a classroom, but you want to make something that really gets people thinking and you inspire Rudy and me it's no surprise to me that you've inspired some big names to become part of your work so thank you so much for it thank you I appreciate that thanks Tom bye thank you so much for listening if you have any questions about this episode or about the podcast or if you would like to sponsor a show you can get in touch good is in the details pod at gmail.com and if you'd like to support the show on Patreon, we're on patreon.com slash good is in the detail. I will put that link in the show notes in addition to a link to Tom's work. We're also on Instagram, good is in the details pod. Okay, and we have one more episode coming up before we're wrapping up season two. So if you have any thoughts about future episodes, do get in touch. We're looking for more great guests. If you have a book or a project, we are very excited to hear from you. And thank you for all of the DMs, all of the texts, everything. We're at over 100 five-star reviews now. It's very exciting. We've hit over 23,000 downloads. Very exciting. So thank you, thank you, thank you for the support. Okay, until next time. Bye.